This week I welcome Ben Wardle to the Music Library. The conversation took place when I was at home and he was in a busy cafe, so I have edited some of this show. Ben has just written a book called A Perfect Silence, published by Rocket88. I started my chat with Ben asking whether he approached Rocket88 or vice versa. They actually, I've been working with them off and on for the last, God, over 10 years. And they, just before, I think, no, just after lockdown, Mal, my editor there, gave me a call and and asked me whether I was interested in doing it. And he knew... There was some previous on uh, myself and Mal and, and Talk Talk because we had done a book on sleeve design uh, called The Art of the LP about a decade earlier. He'd been very uh, dismissive of me wanting to put Spirit of Eden in there as a, um, as a piece of artwork. For some reason, my memory seems to suggest that it's in there, but I actually had a look through the book the other day, and it's not, which is a great shame, because uh, it's a fantastic cover. So he knew that I was a huge Talk Talk fan, which is why he approached me, but he was he was wary. He was saying it was, you know, it's not going to be an easy one, as of which I, you know, without him telling me, already knew. This is a man whom everything written about has been an obituary, you say. I know Brad Pitt presented a documentary that came out 15 years ago about Nick Drake, who's a similar kind of unknown figure. Mark Hollis is probably best known second-hand, thanks to eulogies by Guy Garvey and others. Was it enjoyable to write it, or was it like pulling teeth in parts? The teeth-pulling part of it was actually quite... It was quite pleasurable, and I think the teeth-pulling part was the early years... Uh, and probably, probably to arguably the later years as well, where there's just simply not very much uh, in the public domain already and not very many leads. So the early years, I spent some very happy weeks, probably, um, scooting around the internet on various ancestry websites, looking at addresses where uh, the Hollises have lived to try and tell the story of his parents and his early, very early years in, in London before they moved to Southend, which I didn't even know, to be honest. I did, you know, I, that was a, um, a revelation to me when I, when I definitively found out that the, um, the family had relocated to, to Rayleigh. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't that, that hard, actually. It was a simple, simple matter of just getting the birth certificate of uh, Mark's younger brother and seeing that that's where he was born. I've got you in the music library, Ben Wardle. It's a theatre of the mind. You go into a room and there is shelf upon shelf upon shelf of memoirs, fanzines and records and tapes, factory sleeves and hypnosis sleeves, posters on the walls and a kind of collage. It's a place where fans of music literature can go and discover new favourites and put their hand on old ones. You visit the library two weeks after Graham Thompson, who is working on a book about Talk Talk, and the week after your fellow Essex lad, Will Birch, who has had a brilliant career. Are you a fan of the Cursal Flyers, um, Will's band? Not particularly. I mean, I really like Will and his writing, and I bought his book, No Sleep Till Canvey Island, when it came out, you know, 20 years ago. In fact, this morning, uh, a signed copy of his Nick Lowe biography arrived, so it's nice to have him as a as a colleague now, really. Yeah. I, I, I am a fan of that period of music, though. I, I, I am a huge... My favourite album is probably New Boots and Panties. I'm a massive Nick Lowe fan. 
and Brinsley, Schwartz fan. The Kurzels, I don't really know a great deal about the Kurzels, and I haven't investigated deeply enough, but I did like Will's um, uh, PowerPoint band, the records. Um, I, I like them. Yeah, I, I uh, listened to the, the catalogue the other week. And yeah, it's the, brilliant, the, isn't it? I mean, brilliant. really good. And we can get your book, A Perfect Silence, at markhollisbook.com, although we can't get it anymore because it seems to be sold out. Uh, it was on offer for £35 on the side. It retails at £40, so we'll wait for the reprint. Was the discount an early bird discount for early adopters? I think it's a, I think it's a marketing strategy that I probably shouldn't say that, but it's, it's Rocket 88 do that um, with all their books. I think they, they have a retail price, which is what you would have to pay for, yeah, for retailers who stock them. But you can get them... At a, at a slight discount from directly from the website. I think that's how it works yeah. because the signed copy is is that is that a five pound cheaper? I can't actually. Yes, remember. it is. I think it was like yeah, sixty and then sixty five. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all sold out. Well, I, I say unfortunately, it's good. It's good news. It means that people are, are interested. So they're in a they're, they're kind of currently pressing up a second run at the moment. Well. I happened to be in a Waitrose last week and I picked up the free newspaper that they put out. And Stuart McConey has a music column. He is an enormous fan of Talk Talk. Uh, and in his column, he begins it by saying, There are very few artists whose brilliance everyone seems to agree on. Some people can take Bob Dylan or leave him. Some people don't like Stevie Wonder. Some poor benighted souls pretend not to like the Beatles. Talk Talk, David Bowie, Kate Bush are the ones he thinks are consensus uh, musicians, musicians. And Stuart goes on to say, Spirit of Eden saw Talk Talk striking out for further shores of sonic exploration, pitched absorbingly somewhere between the hazy jazz folk of Pentangle and John Martin and the icy abstractions of Bowie in his Berlin phase. The circumstances of its recording, near darkness, clocks turned to the wall, guest musicians encouraged to improvise. Uh, he's quoting the things that you've written in your book, which he's plugging here as well. Uh, the music has long since departed from the mainstream of pop, he concludes, but such is the humanity, emotion and tenderness at the heart of Hollis's music that it is never alienating. These records may take a while to seep into your consciousness, but once there, they never leave. I guess you get a right to reply, but you're not going to refute any of that, are you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, that's a, it's so much of what the latter music that he made is the, is the sort of music that you can layer on your own personal interpretation, and it's a, and that's as good as any, really. I think it's a, you know the irony or the or the perhaps the, the disparity is that he wasn't always in possession of those faculties as a human being, well, whilst the recording process was going on. So you know that's arguably true of a lot of artists who make mm. beautiful music you know but they can be truculent and um, difficult to work with and uh, and sometimes kind of thoughtless and cruel but um some people who've reviewed the book have kind of picked out those elements of his character but i think there's a good balance of you know of him being a mensch as well as being some someone who who wasn't always easy to work with graham's writing a talk talk did you not know this? I didn't know that. No, tell me more. Okay. And I picked up that a lot of what he's been working on in his career has been people who have passed away. John Martin, Phil Lynott, Johnny Cash, where he picked just the era before the Rick Rubin series. 
Uh, Graham's book on Talk Talk will focus on the 80s records, I guess the psych folk ones, the era that we know. I'm sure he'll be using the source material that you gained too for your book. Okay, interesting. So he's focusing on Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock. Uh, yes, and the solo okay. record as well. And the solo, so not all. So it's not all Talk Talk. It is actually Hollis. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So you'll have to do some kind of book festival event together yeah. and plug the. Has he just started? I, I didn't. Yeah, yeah you, you're the first person. You're, you're clearly very well informed. Much better from than from I the am. mouth no of the horse himself. He's just published his book about simple minds. I actually asked him as as soon as he said he was writing one about talk talk. I went, ah, have you heard Ben Wardle's got a book out about Hollis? He went, yes, I've got his book right in front of me. And so, talk, talk. I'm not going to do a kind of high court judge, who are the Beatles kind of question. I know talk, talk were a trio. I actually looked them up in my Guinness discography, and it mentioned that they're known for their several legal wrangles, which you write about in the book. That's uh, interesting. It's, is, that, is that the first thing when you, in your looking up, that's, the, that's what pops out? The that's le- the, the biography. The How biography is great band, but several legal wrangles. Uh, Mark... <laughs> Paul Webb, the bassist, Lee Harris, the drummer, and Mark Hollis on everything else. Mm-hmm. We know them through their two big radio hits, which were actually reissued, maybe by the record. Can you tell me through why they were reissued? Uh, it's my life and life's what you make it. Well, because they, uh, after leaving EMI, and that's, that's, I mean, that's one of the key myths that I try to dispel in the book, after leaving EMI, they weren't dropped. They, uh, they negotiated their way out of the deal. They did another deal with Polydor, that was their deal concluded, but Polydor obviously were in there, uh, absolutely within their rights, because they still owned the Masters, to issue a best of. So in, and I should know this, I should have this um, stamped on my brain, I think it was in 1991, they put together a record called Natural History, which was uh, effectively Talk Talk singles from the eponymous debut right up until the, uh, the last um, single that Mark didn't want from spirit of eden i believe in you so that ended up being their biggest ever record in the uk and and actually internationally as well it was huge and it was partly huge because they reissued it's my life um life's what you make it and i think they also reissued such a shame and pos- and one other as well so there were, there were four singles released off that compilation with diminishing returns it must be said but certainly it's my life was you know for the first time in the uk it was his bona fide hit at the contemporaneous when it was released in back in the in 1984. Yeah, it was four. Um, it was the record or one of the two big singles that broke them uh, in Europe. That and such a shame. Ironically, it was such a shame that was the key um, record that broke them. It wasn't it's my life. Uh, broke them in Holland. Broke them in Germany, Italy, um, France, Switzerland. Just yeah, across the across the board, and that was in many ways the key uh, to Hollis's ability to kind of take a step back from playing the pop star game because they'd sold so many records in Europe and in the UK because no one really cared about Talk Talk. Yeah, because he was not a Bono, Jim Kerr figure. He's still known, well, not just because he took himself out of the lineup, but he wasn't a smash hit star. He didn't get a nickname like Byron Ferrari. Or someone like that. 
Well, he did in the... I mean, I don't know about nicknames, but he certainly, uh, you know, played the pop star game in Europe in that period, you know, when they were having... At one point, I think they had four records in the German top 60, four singles. It was a George Michael or a, mm. or a, uh, a, a Boy George figure, really, in, the, in, the, uh, in those territories. Be, you know, he'd be merrily doing features in German magazines like Bravo that would be titled... You know, Mark, Mark Hollis is the target at which girls throw their bras, which is an interesting one in itself because within an, an interview like that, he would be talking about his sort of sensitivity and why he has to wear his sunglasses all the time. So he kind of did dip his toes in the water to a certain extent in the uh, in the Byron Ferrari um, yeah. stream. And it was interesting that... Um... I think the guy who came up with that nickname was Neil Tennant. If it wasn't, it was Tom Hibbert. But Smash Hits, which sold a million copies at the time, it was the main youth magazine, um, must have played a little bit of a role. Would they have reviewed The Colour of Spring and Spirit of Eden, Smash Hits, or would have that been a more Q magazine territory? When Colour of Spring came out, Q didn't exist. Right. Um, that was I my think, next question. I think Spirit of Eden was uh, was certainly reviewed in, in Q. It was roughly released at the same time as the, as the birth of Q, uh, and was in some respects very much the sort of uh, you know CD friendly music that Q was all about. There isn't very much coverage of Talk Talk in Smash Hits after um, the Color of Spring. They had a lot of uh, or. or, or you know, the requisite amount of coverage in Smash Hits. And there's a, there's a very interesting telephone interview that Mark conducts with a journalist at Smash Hits whilst he's on holiday in the Lake District from a small red telephone box, which is quite quite characteristically, i.e. with humour, um, written by, by the Smash Hits journalist. So, yeah, they had all the, you know, they went through the pop, the pop motions and arguably wanted to be uh, a, a pop group. I studied music at university. One of the things I learned was that in early church music, the music got out the way. The music was an accompanying part so that the words could be celebrated. But in the Renaissance, when polyphony was common among composers like Bird and Talis, the music was such that it was too complicated. And so people would focus on the music, not the words. And that created a schism. Uh, In your book, Perfect Silence, you italicise Mark saying that the words serve the tune. Having listened to The Colour of Spring, Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock, he is absolutely right. I gave up trying to hear what he was singing because of the textures, the mood, the tonality of the songs. Is that the feeling you got? I absolutely have no idea what he's singing about. On, on the, and, and sometimes he, you know, he makes it tries to uh, elucidate a little bit in interviews about um, about what songs are about. But often he does this in a, in a slightly arch um, way, which suggests that he's sort of is having a bit of a gag with the with the uh, with, with the interviewer. But I, t- I, I completely concur what you're saying about about words taking a secondary role to the sound of the, the meaning of the words rather taking a secondary role to the sound of the words and I actually would argue that that's much as though we would all like to you know think that pop that pop performers are poets I do think that ultimately it's the sound of the words that, that really should take priority over them over the meaning and some some writers you know Randy Newman Bob Dylan I suppose managed to balance it really nicely 
but ultimately, if they were just, you know, if they were writing a, an essay or trying to, you know, come up with conjuring up images where the poetry and the meaning was 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 of primary importance, then it would it would undercut the beauty of the music. And I think Hollis was, you know, Hollis is the sort of music that Hollis very very quickly established as his favourite music was either instrumental or, or or soul music, where the you know the um, the lyrics were of, were not really of primary importance. Although he did he did quite care for Dylan, I think. Louise Wenner, whose two books are brilliant. I can't remember if you're in them. You must be in them. Uh, do you know what I feel? Well, I've, re- I've only read... Are you talking about the fiction or the non-fiction? The non-fiction, the ones about the band. God, I actually only read the one, which I agree was brilliant. Um, it's different. It was called It's Different Girls. It had a number of different titles, yes. I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't recall being in it. I mean, we had, a, interestingly, the you know, classic sort of record company... Um, an artist falling out briefly. I mean, we're friends again now, which is lovely. But uh, I think when she published that, I was, you know, we were sort of dead to each other, as it were. Perhaps I shouldn't be saying this on air, but no. Anyway, um, yeah, she's a brilliant writer. And and um, I'm glad you brought Sleeper up to a certain extent, because I think that in some respects, they are a kind of later example of the sort of journalistic consensus terrorism, which Mark Hollis suffered from. In which you know a coterie of almost exclusively men, white men, writing for the music press, decide which bands are going to be lauded and which bands are going to be lampooned. Um, and Sleeper got on the wrong side of that quite early on, and it was partly, I think, because rather like Hollis, Louise would she would be quite um, incisive and direct in interviews and quite often not maybe be as compliant as uh, as a you know as a as a as a sort of middle class white journalist writing to the enemy would like i think there is still a, a hangover you know you talk to anyone now and they'll say oh yeah Britpop, yeah sleeper yeah elastica were good though you know and there's that sort of terrible sort of cliche if you actually go back and dig into the music she wrote some fantastic tunes and actually managed to sort of put a bit of meaning into the lyric as well I hope to get Louise in. Um, I'll send her a message. I know she's busy. I think they're put, they're touring this summer, Sleeper. They're touring, actually, at the moment. I've bumped into someone who'd seen them in Bristol. Yeah, they're playing the It Girl, which was the big, yeah. the big one. Yeah, yeah, I remember growing up. I was, sef- sorry to say this, I was seven or eight in the, I call it Knoll Rock, the, the guitar era, in the same way that I call the X Factor stuff Cowl Pop, Knoll right. Rock, because everything sounded like Slade and the Beatles and... Oi, oi. But Sleeper did stand out, and I hope that there is a critical appraisal. You do mention that the success of Mark Hollis is because of the um, democratisation of criticism, which is a way of saying everyone has fingers. But I know it also has something to do with Gwen Stefani, as your book reminded me, which must have made Mark a little bit of money. Well, it's just, you've got to be clear what you're asking me. Are you asking whether there is a critical appraisal or, a, or, or, the, or the wealth? I'm slightly confused um, what the question is. Yeah, well, it's, it was deliberately ambiguous, so you can take either form. But... <laughs> well, I think there's, there's definitely uh, democratisation of, the, of, of um, opinion is, has been brilliant. And also that, you know, the way that people, like-minded people who, who 
enjoy the same music across the world can just talk in real time to each other and um you know there are so many uh talk talk instagram groups and facebook facebook and, and twitter fan groups that um it's quite apparent that, that, that there's a genuine you know there's people that genuinely uh admires him as an artist and i think also that even before social media revolutionized opinion of music and, and frankly rendered music journalists like possibly you and me redundant is um there was a there was a critical reappraisal of mark hollis which kind of get, went hand in hand with his lessening ability to sell records mm. and you know the sharp end of that was the I think the enemy might may even have been Simon Williams and the enemy reviewing um, the Spirit of Eden and giving it a favourable review, almost exclusively because it was a, because it was a middle finger up at the man for how much it was likely to upset EMI, rather than basing judgment on any kind of musical factors. Um, second thing, the uh, yeah Gwen Stefani had a major hand in in enabling. Hollis to just take a gentle step out of the industry and just do exactly what he wanted. You know, he'd already been very sensible with his with his money. You know, wasn't wasn't that live extravagantly at all. So he was already reasonably comfortable before that happened. Um, but after it happened, yeah, it was it, it, it enabled him to just do exactly what he wanted to. Spirit of Eden from 1988 begins with two minutes of ambient synth sounds. It's a nine-minute track called The Rainbow. It's very cinematic. I'm not going to say it's post-rock because I've read your book, and I know that's not what I could say. But it is Kid A ten years before Kid A. It's a complete left turn. Uh, I think that's that's quite reductive, but I certainly think that... I mean, Talk Talk had a... Doing pop... But in being informed by, I mean, you've, you've studied music, so you would know this, the way that classical music is not a, it's not a repetitive genre, is it? It's, a, it's, a, it's music which ebbs and flows and changes and, and ends somewhere completely different from when it started. Obviously, I'm being reductive now. But pop music in the, in the traditional, let's say, Motown or ABBA sense is very much a kind of first course First chorus, bridge, middle eight, repeat chorus, fade type yes. music, and that's and that's kind of what Talk Talk were until Spirit of Eden, and I think that's arguably, with the exception maybe of certain prog rock projects, that's kind of what pop music was as well. So in that respect, they broke a lot of ground and they opened people's eyes up to, I suppose, what is you know the shorthand for that would be post rock, you know, and that. And, and at its most reductive, the loud, quiet formula applied by bands like Mogwai. Um, I'm trying to think, and as I was listening to Talk to it, I was thinking, were there any other bands who would do that kind of thing? Because yes, and ELP and that mob, Pink Floyd, they would mm. do sweets. Sweets, so they, and Beach Boys as well. Um, it, yeah, but they were all quite, they were all still very much a kind of, uh, they were just longer pop songs. I think even on Dark Side of the Moon, you know, they are all pretty coherent and well, well-structured pop songs. There's not a lot of, um, you know, genuine, genuine avant-gardeness. You know, where there's not, there weren't a lot of people. Okay, Re- Revolution Nine accepted. There weren't a lot of pop bands who who were allowing themselves to be informed by atonal or modern classical. You know, I mean, certainly, you know, 
the Beatles' Why album, that like, that Revolution Nine track, is is an absolute died in the wool Stockhausen sort of uh, copy, but it's great, you know. But um, they again, you know, like Hollis, they didn't need to uh, worry about whether they were going to sell, you know, whether it was going to turn people off because they were already doing very well, very nicely. Thank you. Indeed. As I was listening to Laughing Stock, which came out in 1991, I thought, this is so far from a hit record. Two tracks are over nine minutes long, and it made me think of Six Music, which was still ten years away. I call Six Music BBC Radio Peel. If Six Music had been available, I think Talk Talk would have sold a lot more records. Did Laughing Stock even go gold? Well, I was reminded on another podcast I did that it ended that um, it. No, sorry, I'm getting confused now. I, it went it went top thirty for one week and then dipped out. It's in my book. I haven't. I'm afraid I. Uh, I'm ashamed to have uh, not memorised all. That's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of words. About a hundred thousand words in this book. Perfect silence. <laughs> but it it charted, albeit very briefly, and then disappeared. But you've got to put you know putting laughing stock into context. For me, uh, the most kind of illustrative thing about it is that I think a week or possibly two weeks after it was released. Nevermind came out. That's how long ago it was. That's how much the landscape has changed. You know, Nevermind, which is obviously a record that we're now all so familiar with, like Rumours or Dark Side of the Moon. It's a, it's one of those records which feels like it's always been around, whereas Laughingstock still feels sort of like a, an outsider and, and very, very kind of modern in a way. Yeah, hugely. Uh, before I read your book, A Perfect Silence, I never listened to Laughing Stock. I listened to Spirit of Eden, mainly because Guy Garvey would bang on about it. Every time I tuned into his finest hour radio show, I would hear him go on about Spirit of Eden. I mean, I, you know, I, I like very much care for early Elbow records, but the entire DNA of Elbow, I think, is contained in, that, in, the, in the track New Grass. You know, sonically, songwriting-wise, everything, lyrically, it's all there. Even down to the fact that Guy is more syllabic than lyrical, uh, the words follow the music in Elbow's case as well. To go back to Radiohead, they were even on the same label, EMI Polydor, as Talk Talk. They also had a dispute with EMI, but they were able to release In Rainbows for Nothing in 2007, or you could pay what you want, I think I paid a quid. The industry and the technology at the time didn't make it possible for Laughing Stock to come out in 1991. It had to go on the shelves of Virgin or HMV. By the way, would Mark Hollis turn up to gigs by Elbow or Radiohead? No. No, I mean, I think he had, uh, he, he had no interest in contemporary music pretty much from the moment they signed to EMI as Talk Talk. I think he was so immersed in everything from the mid-60s to the late-70s via his brother Ed, which I think is one of the key narratives in the in the Hollis story and in my book. He, he'd done that, and he was ready to sort of move on and, and discover different types of musics. And I got the impression he was a, possibly a little bit snooty about pop music. You know, he had a his children's um, uh, music teacher when he was in Wimbledon who, who ended up um, playing piano on the solo album Lawrence Pendrews, he became quite close to, and they used to play golf together. And Pendrews was a hugely knowledgeable about atonal classical and modern classical, and as well as you know more traditional classical music. And they would have long, long conversations on the 
<laughs> as they strode across the green. And, um, you know, but he was at the same time, he was very much into pop music and he would always sort of say, oh, Mark, come and, come and see this band at the Shepherd's Bridge Empire with me. I think you like them. You know, and Alice would always be like, do you honestly think there's anything there that I'm going to like, you know, and give him a sort of withering stare? And he did. He told me he did try and uh, have a conversation about Radiohead with him. And he just, uh, he looked, he, he gave me a, a hard stare and said, and said, yes, I am aware that there is a band called Radiohead. And that's, that was the end of Brilliant. that conversation. <laughs> it's very interesting to read about the interviews that he did for media, TV especially. Uh, what a fascinating figure who is worthy, Mark Hollis, of a 350-page book called A Perfect Silence. It's so good that it's sold out. Do we have to wait for a reprint now? You can order it. And, there's, and I think there's another, some signed copies. I know because I've signed a load of uh, bits of paper for them. They are being um, printed as we speak. And then the standard uh, £40 or £35 edition is going to be ready in the next week or so, I think. Fab. It's, much well, quick, it's a much quicker turnaround um, now that all the kind of, you know, the plates have been done. Yeah. Well, this this show will go out at the end of uh, May, just before the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Do you get a week off from your lecturing gig? Um, <laughs> well, I'm only a part. I, I work three days a week. The rest of the week, I'm swimming around in the vast royalties I'm earning from the Mark Hollis book. No, I'm just, I'm, uh, you know, probably, probably list, listening to music and... Uh, and uh, and writing more stuff. Um, yeah, good. I think we get some we get some days off. Yeah, excellent. Uh, well, I'll mm. look out for your byline yes. in various places. Just before we go to your ears, your valuable ears. Uh, so you got paid money for your ears. Uh, and I'm fascinated about A and R men. Oh, A and R, yes. Just to mention that there is a whole page of interviewees, and I noted the names Paul Epworth and Dominic Miller. Dominic Miller is the guitarist whose work is best known as Shape of My Heart uh, yes. by, by Stingo. Paul yes, Epworth. Well, he co-wrote that, yeah. Yes, co-wrote it. And his son is also a guitarist who plays with Sting. And um, Paul Epworth, who is the hottest producer on the planet. Yes. Have you known Paul a while? I can't claim to be that he's my best mate. I mean, I've been aware of him for, and uh, and I've kind of had some traction with him over the years. Well, on my last A&R job was for V2 Records, and I A&R the really fantastic um, London band called The Rakes. Oh, you yeah. may remember, uh, who did a f- really fantastic debut album Catch that Paul Epworth, Catch a Release, that mm. Paul produced. Um, and I, A&R, their second album, we couldn't get Paul to do it. And it was around the same time that I was also looking at a, a new artist who was coming through called um, Kate Nash. And Paul was doing the, he was doing some demos for her and he produced her the, the first Mary single. Um, Foundations was um, single. Yeah, Foundations. Yeah, he did Foundations, which was just such an obvious out-of-the-bag hit. Um, and so I had those two points of contact with Paul, and sadly, neither of them came to anything. You know, didn't, we didn't end up using him on the second Rakes album. Still a good record, but possibly would have been better if he'd have done it. And we never got to sign Kate Nash because the deal was astronomical and inevitably universal. Picked us to the post, and, and Epworth, um, you know, went from strength to strength. Adele was getting signed to uh, Beggars. Oh, Beggar, Excel, yeah. Yeah. I think I've got so many V2 records because they were the... Was it the indie subsidiary of Virgin? 
V2. No, no, no. It was an attempt by Richard Branson to recreate the original um, Virgin. Right. So he, um, hence its name. I mean, when I joined it, I think that was in the last days of the original V2 Empire. It was in a beautiful building in Holland Park, and, and there was a canteen in the basement and a bar, which, you know, occasionally Paul, uh, Paul Weller would come and serve behind. Legend has it that he took his he took his son down there, who was a goth at the time, and, and ordered a pint, and then said, uh, yeah, pint, pint for me, and he had a pint of blood for me, son, which I thought was quite uh, quite amusing. Um, but yeah, very quickly we kind of, you know, we, we, we had the inevitable journey from beautiful palatial building in Holland Park to prosaic council um, industrial estate in Fulham, and then the ignominy of being bought by Universal two years later. So it was a, it was a bit of a, you know, last days of the Raj. No wonder mm. your Art of the LP book stops at 1995 because the analog era ended with Mark Andreessen, the Netscape guy. You know David Hepworth's book about the rock star uncommon people he says rock stars the age has passed but that doesn't mean people don't dress up as cowboys or mick jagger anymore that era post all the money because i was watching some music videos the other day that the rap videos where they'd spend a million dollars because they had a million dollars slowly the record industry contracted and then doesn't exist so we're now in this weird time where people are paying you to teach them about music business and the creative industries at the University of Gloucestershire. Do you approve of what Tom Gray is doing with the Broken Record campaign? Because it seems, as a songwriter myself, it's a bum deal for songwriters, unless it changes quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... Um, I, I, think that, I think that campaign is valid. I don't want to kind of go too deeply into it, but I do think that um, when I started lecturing, which would have been around... 2017 I think right around that we were still in the days of, of the download and at that time I was thinking this is, this is not good it didn't feel like there was much of a future if everything was reliant on just people having to go to the Apple Music and um, or the iTunes store as it was in those days and buy mp3s so what's happened in the you know in the preceding or in the subsequent five years is the, the record industry as you call it has it's certainly you know it certainly hasn't gone anywhere it's, it's exploded there is now an awful lot of money potentially but i totally agree that there is a business model which um people have got used to whereby if you're a small band you could make a living from selling a uh, you know fifty thousand albums that is no longer there and that's something which is a is a shame and i think ultimately you know, there will be solutions. There are, you know, there are people working on solutions. I hope it's not blockchain-based solutions because obviously that's going to burn the planet up with the with the all the server energy mm. that that requires. I think we'll I think we'll get there. I just think that the one thing that all musicians have to bear in mind, and I say this to my students, is that you know, just because you're in a band or just because you write songs and you know you can put a, you can put a melody together and your voice is quite good, doesn't automatically entitle you to a career in the music business, you know. I mean, that's always been the case, with the possible exception of maybe, you know, 1972 when everyone got a record deal and I was allowed to make three albums for Harvest. But, uh, so it's a little bit of politics there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, given that I worked in that at a time when it was lots of money was coming in because people were, you know, record companies were selling um, the same records to people on a different format 
that uh, they already owned and there was lots and lots of yeah, money flowing in. It still didn't mean that we could just sign someone and expect them to be automatically successful. Far from it. It's a different era. and It's the same era in that respect. It's never going to change. There's never going to be an era you know, where there's a kind of um, a democratisation of success you know, there are going to be some winners and there are going to be some losers, and that's the way that the entertainment industry works, unfortunately. You have four or five of the same product. I always like to say, no, 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 I own this already. I've got Olivia mm. Rodrigo. Why do I want Mimi Reb, Tate McRae, Gail, <sighs> Leah Kate? I've got it. There will be artists who work in popular music and sound. Uh, Glass Animals who were on Wolf Tone, Paul Letworth's label, had the biggest track in America for a month this year. That must gladden your heart that a young British guy, Dave Bailey, can make a song that is, it's four familiar chords, but it still manages to capture the moment. Oh, man, and not only that, it's that Glass Animals are managed by um, a, a woman called Amy Morgan, who myself and my colleague Charlie Pinder employed at B2 to be oh, our scout. So wow. it's lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of her and pleased for what she's done she's immensely immensely talented uh, i mean the band are great but yeah amy morgan all all hail her yeah thank you for that because that's one of the books i'd love to write is what what goes on behind the band who's the booking agent who's the makeup artist who makes beyonce look great who's the photographer there are so many ancillary roles that go into making the product and, and i got this because the, there's a U2 industry, there's a Rolling Stones industry, country bands would have to lay people off who are their road crew. There's more than just the star, and then you've got the people with the social media. There was no social media when Louise Wenner was trying to plug What Do I Do Now? She had to go on to Chris Evans and TFI Friday and, and all the, all the well, however few music papers were there. Who are you excited about listening to today, apart from Glass Animals? Well, I would I would immediately say wet leg, were it not for a, a repeated um, experiences of disappointment with them, where I've tried to buy their single, and the my guy in my local record shop had four, and they put, made the mistake of putting them on Discogs, and the same person bought all four copies, uh... and then presumably flipped them and sold each one for a hundred quid. Um, I think they're great though, and I and I and I haven't even seen the live, and that's not for want of trying. But again, you, you go, you know, you wait. I'm terrible at buying tickets. I think a, a lifetime of working in the music industry and getting free, you know, guest lists and free tickets has, has, has crippled me for life in terms of actually being able to, you know, get get ahead online and, and actually purchase stuff one. Um, but I do think they're really good and particularly, and actually not to bang on about Sleeper the whole time where it feels like we are, I don't think they're a million miles away from what Sleeper would do with that kind of pop irony you know, their contemporization and, and look at the mundanities of modern life and turning it into um, pop. That song, Supermarket, I think uh, anyone who can put buy one, get one free into a hook is uh, all right in my book, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I like them. And also, uh, the great for me, the great unsung band of the, of, of the last decade is Spoon, yep. who's um, Lucifer on the Sofa came out earlier this year is probably the best record i think really really strong great record um, he knows how yeah. to write a song Brit Dan, mm. he's done it for 25 years you'd expect him yeah. to be pretty good at what he yeah. does yeah i mean it's not great it's not kind of re revealing anything to people who already know about spoon but i get the impression that in this country that's there's only like well 
obviously you, and then me and Michael Han, and that's about it. Who's also been in the music library because of his book Denim and Leather. Okay, yes, I haven't read that yet. Yeah, yeah. Yo, you must. You will have a reappraisal of um, Diamond Head and Venom, <laughs> if you so wish. But as it is, uh, we've been praising Mark Hollis and Talk Talk. Mark Hollis, A Perfect Silence, available at markhollisbook.com. The author is Ben Wardle. I hope you go and see Wet Leg during summer festival <laughs> season. And then you can die in peace. Let's hope so. Indeed. Yes, I'm doing. A, I'm, d- I'm going to definitely going to see Phoebe Bridges, which is another one, and that's and that's because I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing like a book reading at Latitude, so I'm quite excited about that. Oh, wonderful! You might see Stuart McConey at Latitude um, with a mic, and so he'll want to bend your ear about Hollis. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a good well, lineup. Very white lineup this year, but a very good lineup. It is a bit white. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Such yes. is the market. But Fab, yeah, enjoy that, and I'll um, look out for any other radio appearances. What other podcasts have you done? Are you doing? I've done uh, Jim Irvin's. I'm a huge fan of Jim. Obviously, he appears in the book as well. A podcast called "You're Not on the List." I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but it's, a, it's people. Oh, it's definitely worth listening to. People, all the usual suspects, bring in uh, an album that they feel should be added to the canon oh, of essential uh, records. Yeah. Um, so I did that and managed to get a little bit of time on the Jellyfish second album. Correct. And, um, sorry, someone's up. My dog is sitting next to me very patiently now. So. And with that, Ben and Dog left the cafe. The Music Library is presented by me, Johnny Brick. You can check out the last few interviews with music critics, including Arusa Qureshi, the aforementioned Michael Hand, the brilliant Ian Winwood, Graham Thompson as well, aforementioned. Next week, One Hit Wonders with Professor Sarah Hill.